Okay, my introduction is, you know, fun for me, but less important, right? Um, so I wanted to say to everybody that this is a great pleasure for me to introduce a colleague and clergywoman who I greatly respect, Rabbi Helen Plotkin. Rabbi Plotkin began her intense study of Biblical Hebrew and other early Hebrew texts in 1982 when she attended the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, in Israel. Pardes is the only institution where Jewish women, together with Jewish men, can study Bible and rabbinic texts, like the Mishnah and Talmud, in the same intensive and traditional manner as Jewish men have for centuries. That is, in Hebruta, Hebruta with a study partner, as well as in the classroom. <coughs> Rabbi Plotkin has been a tireless champion of this traditional form of study in her teaching at Swarthmore College, culminating in her founding and running of a Beit Midrash there. The Beit Midrash, literally House of Study, is a physical site where all of the scholarly books, lexicons, and commentaries the student needs to engage in intensive classical Hebrew study are housed. The Beit Midrash is also a center where Swarthmore students come to do that intensive study and connect as scholars. Rabbi Plotkin was only recently ordained in 2008, but this was after many years of studying rabbinics and Hebrew letters at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. As part of her tireless outreach to the Jewish communities of our area, Rabbi Plotkin has also founded an educational center called Mekom Torah, a place of Torah, an open and expansive opportunity for Jewish learning for adults, teenagers, and families. Her experience teaching college students in Hebrew and Jewish studies and her abiding interest in including everyone in the conversation make her seem a perfect choice to me to speak to ACS students today. Her talk, and, and in fact, obviously, ACS agreed. And Mary Lou Hill and I worked very hard to get this to fruition, and Berta Kruzak helped us as well. Thank you so much. <laughs> we also have sponsorship from Theology and Religious Studies, from Philadelphia Hillel, which is a Jewish Students Association, and I thank all of these groups for helping us bring this together. Rabbi Plotkin's talk today is entitled, Inside the Garden, How the Jewish Interpretive Tradition Reads the First Humans. Please give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, and, uh, and thank you for that really very lovely introduction. Well, and thank I, you also to, to Mission and Ministry, who also helped us. Yes, thank you. And if you can't hear me until we maybe get this microphone working, raise your hand. Okay, if you can hear me, raise your hand. Okay, yes. Well, it didn't work to say it the other way. Okay. Thank you. It is really an incredible pleasure to be here. And for me, it's, a, it's especially a pleasure to be speaking in a room where I can assume 
that for at least some of the people here, it is not a foreign concept to talk about a text, a story, a set of stories, a book, as representing an expression of God. I, uh, I, I want to talk about the question of what it is, how it is that we are meant to respond, or how it is, not that we're meant to, how it is that we do respond to having in our possession a book that we believe to be the word of God, the expression of God. And I want to illustrate for you with some examples the Jewish traditional response to that experience. Now, nothing I say today is meant to be an argument for a particular way of responding to, to that belief. If anything, I would, I would hope that after today, there's more chance to have dialogue about the act, to actually examine how it is that in your own traditions you respond to the fact that some of the texts that you, that you have in your possession are understood to be holy texts. The text that we're talking about in the, in the case of the Jewish interpretive tradition is what I'm going to call the Torah. It's um, related to the Old Testament in the, Hebrew, in the uh, Christian uh, scripture, but it's not exactly the same. It, um, one thing about it is that while there's a million translations out there, a rough estimate, um, it's very important to pay attention to the Hebrew words. So the, 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 the Torah is a Hebrew document, a Hebrew scripture. Um, and also, it, from the point of view of the Jewish tradition, it's not an Old Testament in the sense that it is present tense, it is current, it is understood to be the, the living expression of God. So what do you do? What does the Jewish tradition do in response to that understanding of its own text? The answer is that it responds with a way of reading. The Jewish response to having a text that is understood to be the word of God is a method of reading. And specifically, a method of reading the Torah. So I think it's a method of reading that you will find quite different from the method of reading that you're used to. And I'm going to tell you some of its characteristics to, to start with. Um, but mostly I want to demonstrate it. So I'm not going to try to describe how it's different from the way you're used to reading. But I'm thinking that maybe if you're, if you're thinking about that while we're studying together, that maybe at the end people can offer me some, possibly some uh, articulations of how what I'm doing here is different from the kind of reading that, that you're used to. So, okay, the first key to the Jewish response to the Hebrew Bible as an expression of God is what we call close reading. Every story, every character, every sentence, every word, and sometimes even the shape of a letter is an opportunity to find out something about God. So there's no limit 
to the depth of meaning to be found in the particulars of, a, of the stories and of the sentences and the words of the Torah. I, I like to think of it like when you're in love with someone. You, you can say, he's very handsome, she's very beautiful. But that's a very different thing from spending an hour kind of looking at and describing the particular way their eyes crinkle, right? Looking at the specifics becomes a way to express and to enlarge the love. So um, for the Jewish interpreters, the Torah is not merely true. I'm not saying that it isn't true. I'm saying it's not merely true any more than a beloved is merely beautiful. The Torah is a bottomless source of ongoing revelation. So in the Jewish interpretive tradition, therefore, if you neglect its details, any moment you spend neglecting its details is a moment that you could have been communing with God. It was an opportunity. So the first key, and this is, this is uh, starting to be on the handout and on the board. I'm really glad because the handouts aren't in color. So. Um, Close reading is the first principle of the Jewish interpretive tradition. So another characteristic of the Jewish ter interpretive tradition is um, <coughs> no, we do that. No, no, stay. Keep it. Stay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Wait. It just oh. there. There. Another characteristic is um, what I want to call the seventy faces of the Torah. Now, this is actually something. A, a principle of reading that is often quite disturbing to um, contemporary people. And, and I think it might make you a little uncomfortable. This principle is that the Jewish, the Jewish interpreters don't seem to be looking for a single authoritative interpretation of what the Torah means. And so they are open to multiple interpretations that kind of exist at the same time and even contradict each other. So I want to actually, if you have the handout, this is on the very back of the, the back page. And you really, this, you can't really see it here. So you can see this page. Okay, who wants to read? No, never mind. Um, <laughs> This is a page from Mikraot Gedolot. This is a page from this book. Um, this book. This is the book of Genesis. Right? This whole thing is the book of Genesis, not the Hebrew Bible. This is just the book of Genesis. And it's printed like this. Um, and in the upper, uh, upper right corner is the actual text of the Bible. And then over next to that is um, a second century Aramaic translation. And then down the page are various commentators with various opinions. These particular commentators are from um, the medieval period. And I want to draw your attention to the one in the upper um, left there, Rashi. 
you can see it's actually one of the shorter commentator, the commentaries, but it's very, um, it's very important. And the way it works is there'll be a phrase in the Bible, and then, oops, all gone. <laughs> no, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. All right, look at your handouts. So, <laughs> so there's a um, it it was it. I don't think it's this. Uh, it turned out, what happened was the system. Yeah, the bulb could have gone out. All right, let's just do it from, go look at your, it, people, try to share with somebody who has a handout if you don't have one. Um, that's fine. So, um, so the, the, that commentator in that, uh, that upper left commentator is a guy named Rashi. And that's a real person. He lived in France in the 11th century. His dates are on there under A. And he was a winemaker. Whoa, it's one or the other, guys. <laughs> okay, that works and this doesn't. <laughs> okay, so now I can talk softer. So, um, so Rashi was a wine merchant and a winemaker. That's why his picture has little grapes around it. And we don't know what he looked like. This is an artist's rendition. But what he did that makes him at the top left corner of that page is that in his spare time, he wrote commentaries on phrase by phrase commentaries on pretty much all the important texts of the Jewish tradition, including the Bible. And so for about 900 years, not quite, but going on 900 years, Rashi's commentary on the Torah has been the constant companion of traditional Jews. When, when um, Professor Weiner was talking about, uh, about study partners, Rashi is a study partner. He's an ongoing study partner of the Jewish people. And he's back. <laughs> so um, now I can't see it here, but I don't know where that is. OK, so there's Rashi. And, um, no, it'll come back, guys. It'll come back. One more. It should, it'll take a minute, but it'll come back. All right. See, it's back. Oh, okay. yeah. It's, I'm sorry, guys. Okay, I'll make it big. Good. Ta-da. Okay, so Rashi's real name, Rashi is an acronym. His real name is Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak, Rabbi Solomon, son of Isaac. And, um... And Rashi sometimes includes two or three possibilities for what a verse could mean um, in his own little short commentary. But he didn't make up the commentaries that he wrote. He used sources, sources that had been handed down to him for six or eight or 600 or 800 or 1,000 years. And these sources are collections of ancient Jewish interpretations that are called midrash. Okay, that's the word, midrash. So midrash, plural midrashim, is a kind of Jewish biblical interpretation originally passed down in oral form and written down in anthologies starting in about the 5th century. So um, the interpretations I'm going to show you today are from um, Rashi, 
and from a collection of midrashim compiled between 400 and 600 CE called Genesis Rabbah. So Rashi and Genesis Rabbah, we're going to look at those commentaries and maybe look at how, they, how, they, one, how Rashi reads Genesis Rabbah. So um, Rashi and his, and the other, peop, other boys on the page, that's what we call them, the boys on the page. Um, Rashi uses a characteristic Jewish techniques for interpreting the Bible. They look very closely at individual words and sentences, and they read beyond the obvious meaning of the text, beyond and between. They know the obvious meaning, and they look for another meaning. They look for a way to ask another question, and they look for a way to dig out and uncover and sort of mine hidden meanings. They don't make abstract philosophical or theological statements. And they never tell you the moral of the story. So all the commentators that come after Rashi pay him respect. They all obviously read his work and took it very seriously. But they have no problem writing in their little commentary on that same page. He was wrong. <coughs> Rashi was wrong. So that cacophony of voices all on one page is how traditional Jews like their Bibles printed. And um, that's what we mean when we say the 70 faces of the Torah. So we're going to encounter both of these principles and one more. The idea that everything is connected. So in the hands of the Jewish interpretive tradition, every line of the Torah potentially could shed light on any other line. So it's never crazy to ask, for example, how this particular line in Psalms or Isaiah teaches you something about a line in Genesis, or how a particular line in the book of Exodus finally explains the secrets of the Song of Songs. Right? Everything is connected. So that's my introduction. We're looking at commentaries from Rashi in the 11th century, Midrashim, from Genesis Rabbah that are basically from the first half of the um, first century of the Common Era. And we're going to see close reading, the 70 faces of Torah, and everything being connected. And we're going to do that using the really most important technique, asking questions. Every single word is a potential for questions. All right, so now to the story of creation. So, I'll start with some things that I think you already know. The, um, I think you probably already know that there are two stories of creation in the first few chapters of Genesis. In fact, the Catholic Study Bible labels them the first story of creation, the second story of creation. By the way, a, Jew, a Jewish uh, Bible would not do that because it would, keep open more, it would keep open the possibility that maybe it's only one story, right? But, it looks like two stories. I mean, I think most people reading it would say there are two stories there. Let's talk about why for a minute, why we would all say that if we just read it. First of all, the order of creation is different, right? In, in the first story, God creates human beings, what day? Six, on the sixth day, which is really the last day of creation. 
So everything else has been created, and finally, the culminating creation is the human being. In the, se in the um, second story of creation, God creates the human being essentially first. The plants can't grow without the human to till the soil. And then the human is lonely, and so we need a friend for him, so let's make the animals. And then, right? So the order is different. In the first story, humans are created male and female on day six. In the second story, it isn't until later that, that the one gender is, is divided off into two. So the order of creation is different. The method of creation is different. In the first story, God speaks and the world comes to be. God speaks and says, let's divide light and dark, water from water, dry land from earth. Seven careful, flawless steps of speaking. And after each step, God saw that it was good. There's a kind of um, perfection in that process. In the second story, God's messing around in the mud. And he seems to be experimenting. He tries this, and the human's lonely, and so he may try some animals. Right? There's a, there's a very different method that God seems to be using in the second story. So that's another reason. The order and the method, both of them say, hey, these really are not the same creation story. And the third thing is that the name of the main character is different. Right? In the first story, um, the, 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 the main character is somebody that most translations call God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. Elohim. It's a plural word. Actually, I'm going to go down and, and show you B here. You don't have to look too closely at it. But those are the two names. Elohim is the first name. It's a plural word that sometimes is used, is translated judges as a plural. But um, most of the time, and here in this story, it's used to refer to God. The second story is about someone that the, that the New American Bible calls the Lord God. And some translations write Yahweh God. So the word Lord in Lord God is a polite placeholder for the four-letter personal name of God. And the letters are in Hebrew, yud Hey vav Hey, And that is God's name. So some people try to pronounce those letters, right, and, and say Yahweh, and other people find that presumptuous, just like you wouldn't, most people don't call their parents or their professors by their first name. They'd say mom or professor, right? So you don't call God by God's first name, so people say Lord instead. Actually, I think I will today use the word Adonai. Adonai is a Hebrew word that means Lord. And I'm going to use the words Adonai and Elohim to talk about these two names. So you try to keep that in mind. So the first um, story is about Elohim, and the second story is about Adonai Elohim. And so from the point of view of a normal, sane, modern person, they're two separate stories. And at best, they're unrelated, and at worst, they're contradictory. 
So what then is a person to do who wants to take the, the Torah as an expression of God when you discover that you can't even get through the first three pages without stumbling over inconsistencies in the names of God and worse, in the way the world is created, right? How can, what are you supposed to do with that if, if you believe that this is a, an expression of or an access to the divine? So many people assume that there are exactly two ways to deal with this. You can either take a completely scholarly stance and move away from a reading that's meant to take you closer to God toward a reading that illuminates history. Or you can deny that there's any contradiction. If this is the word of God, then it is flawless. If it is flawless, then it must be consistent. So it's consistent, right? Those are the two ways that people often feel assume you can get, get started working with that, with the problem. And as you might expect, there are um, traditional Jewish commentators, commentaries who do that reconciling job, who say, look, we have to reconcile these stories. We know they have to be consistent, so let's work on reconciling them. So for example, Rashi, our good friend, says, when he's talking about verse 6, in, in chapter one, I mean day six in chapter one, male and female he created them. He says, but later it says that he took the rib from, from, the, from the one and made the other. Looks like a contradiction. And so what he says is, the simple meaning of the verse here is that it informs you that they were both created on the sixth day, but it doesn't explain to you exactly how they were created until later. Okay, he reconciles them. The, day, the, the second story, the whole second story, according to that commentary, is a little zoom in on, on um, that one line. It's like a hypertext link. What really happened when he created the male and female? Oh, here's the story. So that's a way of reconciling. Sorry. Um, okay, but in another place, Rashi himself highlights the difference between the stories. And in his hands, what looks like a contradiction and looks like a threat to the divinity of the Torah actually becomes not a threat, but an opportunity. And in order to explain this, I have to tell you a little bit more about the names of God. Elohim and Adonai are the two most common names of God in the Bible, but by no means the only names. There's an important line of scholarship that uses the different names of God to reveal that the Torah is an amalgam of texts that come from a variety of groups who lived in different social and historical circumstances and who believed in different deities. And so this line of scholarship is, is a very exciting way to study. It gets very excited about tracing the names of God through the Hebrew Bible as a way of sort of developing and noting the development of the concept of monotheism. Okay, so that's an exciting area of scholarship. The Jewish tradition also finds these names to be very exciting. 
but for very different, in a very different way, very different kind of excitement from that scholarly excitement. The Jewish tradition talks about the names of God as representing different attributes, faces, facets of God, so that by studying, the excitement comes by studying the different names of God as a way to kind of understand the internal workings of God. So Elohim, in this way of reading, represents God in God's stance of judgment. Judgment or justice. yud heh vav that God's name, Adonai, represents God in God's stance of mercy and compassion. Elohim and Adonai are different <coughs> moods, personalities, aspects, attributes of God. So the name of God that's uh, used in chapter one is Elohim. <coughs> Elohim. The name of God, and that's that's a very common, um, commonly used name of God in the in the Torah. And the name of God that's used in chapters two and three is Adonai Elohim. And that is very unusual. You hear a lot about Elohim, you hear a lot about Adonai, but you don't really hear about a sustained narrative involving Adonai Elohim any place but here. So that fact, the uniqueness of this way of talking about God, that is what I want to call a hook. Rashi and the, and the Midrash, they look at that and they say, ah, this is unique. That's a hook on which to hang interpretation. Let's figure it out. So Rashi says, Rashi actually comments on the beginning story. He says, how come, how come that first story, the story about the creation of the world, the very first line in the beginning, why, don't, why doesn't it use God's name? Why don't we hear Adonai there? Right? And here's what he answers. It does not say Adonai created heaven and earth because in the beginning, it was God's intention to create the world using the attribute of judgment. But he saw that the world would not endure. So he preceded it with the attribute of mercy, joining that with the attribute of judgment. Thus it is written, on, and this is the beginning of the second story, on the day when Adonai Elohim made earth and heaven. So here's what he's saying. The first story tells about God's original plan, a perfect world, a world that is finished. I made it. It's done. Good. A world that God looks at and he judges it good, right? It's, it's done. I don't, doesn't need any more work. Good. But this perfect world, there was an instability in it. 
It was brittle. It could not endure. There's a kind of stillness in, 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 in perfection that doesn't, doesn't, has no give. So God tried again. And in the second story, God preceded judgment with mercy. He put Adonai in front of Elohim and preceded judgment with mercy. So for me, I, I can kind of get my head around the idea that the first story is associated with um, judgment and justice. This perfection, hierarchy, the judgment that what God sees is good. I, I can see that. But how could the second story, right? I mean, I assume you all know the second story, right? How could that be a story about compassion and mercy? Isn't it a story about commandment and transgression and harsh punishment? I mean, where's the mercy and compassion in that? Where would the tradition get this idea? So, um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, actually, I, before I go on though, I want to read you where Rashi got that idea. I'm going to read you one of the ancient Midrash, a piece of ancient Midrash about that same thing and you'll see, you'll, I want to read you this because you can see the difference in the way that, that they talk about these things in the 11th century from really ancient times. Listen to this. This is a comment on Adonai Elohim. This may be compared to a king. This may be compared to a king who had some empty glasses. The king said, if I pour hot water into them, they will burst. If I pour cold water, they will contract and snap. So what did the king do? He mixed hot and cold water and poured it into them and they stood fast. In the same way, the Holy One, blessed be he, said, if I create the world with the attribute of mercy alone, its sins will be great. If I create it with the attribute of judgment alone, how can the world stand? So I will create it with the attribute of judgment and with the attribute of mercy, and may it then stand. So that's God hoping, hoping that the world will stand if he tries mixing mercy and judgment. Okay, so I'm going to count on you to, to think about how the second story, after we look at some of these other interpretive uh, ideas, maybe you can help me figure out why, what that story has to do with mercy and compassion. Okay, so now we really are ready to take a walk through the garden. And I want to just sort of stop and look at a few of the interpretations along the way. So I'm going to start by putting under the microscope, we can look at C now. I want to start by look, putting under the microscope of interpretation. Genesis 3, verse 6. Here's what it says. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Okay? The woman saw that the tree was good for food. So I want to show you that this verse uses exactly the same phrase 
as that refrain in chapter 1 that says, God saw that it was good. When the woman looked at the tree, she saw keto, that it was good. So take a look at that. This is my bad English, okay? I'm trying to replicate the Hebrew word order. It says in Hebrew, Vayar Elohim Kitov. Saw Elohim that good it was, is implied. It says that all those different verses that I've, that I've numbered there, it says that same phrase. Vatere ha'isha kitov ha'etz. Saw the woman that good the tree was. You see how it's the same exact words? What is that about? That the, what, the snake, what, the, what the woman sees when she encounters the tree is just what God sees when he finishes a piece of the world that he's creating. So that is, again, a hook for interpretation. So in a midrash from the fourth or fifth century, you can watch the rabbis trying to imagine what a screenplay for the scene might look like. What did the snake say? And how did he convince Eve to go against God's command? So this is from Genesis Rabbah, commenting on, on, on Genesis on, uh, 3.6. Rabbi Joshua of Siknin said in Rabbi Levi's name, the snake began speaking slander about his creator, saying, this is the tree from which God ate and then created the world. He told you not to eat it so that you would not create other worlds because everyone hates their competitors. <laughs> so that is how the snake talked Eve into eating the fruit. Right? Now, this is, you have to understand that this is simultaneously a, a, the interpretation of the first story and of the second story. I always really love that line about um, Vayar Elohim Kitov, and God saw that it was good. I actually had it um, embroidered on my, on my prayer shawl for the neck thingy, and, um, because I love it. It's about how beautiful the world is and about how every little step along the way you can look and say it's good. But this Midrash teaches me to read that line in a very different way. So, in the eyes of the Midrash, seeing that it's good is part of the creative act. In order to create, you actually have to know when to stop creating. And you have to be able to tell when the created thing has gone from not created to created from needing more work to being done. Good, right? Take the cake out of the oven, stick the knife in, good, it's done. Print out the paper, proofread it, good. Hand it in. Um, you know, finish the painting, put it in the frame, it's done, good. That's the difference between good and bad according to this. Needs work more and, and is finished. So what does it mean that, that, that when Eve encountered that tree, right, it's in the context of that tree, what does she learn? She learns to be a creator. She becomes a creator. She can say, huh, that fruit, that's good for food, right? It's like the first time anyone ever made dinner. That, right, until then, they, they just, it says you can eat whatever's in there, whatever's there, you just eat it. So they're eating, they're eating, they don't have to feed each other. Nobody has to make any decisions. There's plenty to eat, they just eat. 
This is the first time the snake says, look, take a look, make a judgment. Make a judgment, and when you judge that that's good to eat, you take and eat it. And that's what she does. And she has created now, she has become a creator by being able to judge that something is good. And so I learned something from this Midrash about the creativity of God and also about how it is that Eve becomes like God through her encounter with this tree. All right. Let's put another verse under the, micro, under the microscope. So um, Genesis 3-7. The eyes of the two of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Okay, this is um, <coughs> section D. All right, Rashi on, and they knew that they were naked. Even a blind person knows when he's naked. What then is the meaning of they knew that they were naked? This is actually an unusual Rashi because he actually tells you what his question is. Often you have to, it's like Jeopardy, you have to figure out the question. That's not always easy. But here he tells you what's the question. Why does it even say that when everybody knows whether they're naked or not? And here's his answer. They had in their possession one commandment and they became denuded of it. So I'll, I'll, we'll go back a few hundred years, um, several hundred years, half a, half a century or more, and look at Rashi's source in Genesis Rabbah. And the eyes of the two of them were open. But were they blind? Rabbi Yudan in the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and also Rabbi Berechi in the name of Rabbi Akiba, explained it by comparing them to a villager who was passing a glass worker's shop. Just when a basket full of goblets and cut glassware was in front of him, he swung his staff around and broke them. The owner arose and seized him, saying, I know that I cannot get compensation from you, but come, and I will show you how much valuable property you have destroyed. In the same way, God showed them, Adam and Eve, how many generations they had destroyed. Goes on, and they knew that they were naked. They had stripped themselves even of the one commandment that they had possessed. So Rashi finds in this Midrash a vision of the nature of the tragedy that took place in the Garden of Eden. What was that tragedy, he wants to know. It doesn't seem so obvious to the Jewish interpreters as it may have seemed the first time you read this story. He wants to know what, what really was the tragedy? What was so tragic about what happened? And here's what he says. To begin with, right? Adam and Eve had one commandment. Don't eat that fruit. They had one commandment. And that was their precious, the precious thing that they owned. They were clothed in one commandment. In their carelessness, they broke that. The one thing they had, they broke. And that left them with nothing. 
So to begin with, they were clothed with this kind of thin scrap of a covenant that bound them to God. And as long as they kept it, they were wrapped in its protection. The tragic and shameful result of their carelessness with that precious possession, the commandment, was simply its loss. There's no punishment, it's just the loss. That's really a surprising image of what a commandment is, I think, here. A commandment is a precious thing whose loss is its own punishment. So now I want to ask you, if the tragedy in the garden, if the tragedy in the garden was the loss of the one possession that was in human hands, namely a commandment, what do you think would be the repair of that tragedy? What repairs the loss of the one commandment humans have? The answer is more commandments. Right? Is that what you said? Yeah. So, okay, so the repair of the tragedy in Eden is going to be the receiving of the law at Sinai. Then the humans will have another chance at keeping safe the fragile and precious opportunity to live in accordance with God's commandments. So I'll show you another midrash um, that paints actually a slightly different picture of the tragedy of the garden, but that's more explicit about the idea of Sinai repairing Eden. Okay, ready? This is on Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of Adonai Elohim walking in the garden. I don't think I put this one on the thing. Here it is. Okay, God ascends and descends. So they heard the sound of Adonai Elohim walking about in the garden. Rabbi Abba ben Kahana said, not walking, but walking about is written here. Okay, so here's a problem that you really need to know Hebrew to understand this one. So I have to tell you a little bit. So this is a particularly weird verb form, okay? Um, and um, it's, and and it, there's gonna pl the, the midrash is going to play with the, the, ver the word that's translated walking about. Uh, some, some editions say moving about, or some just say walking. But it's a strange form of the verb to walk. And it has a sense, one of the kinds of senses it can have is a sense of repetitive action. And so in the plain meaning of the text, it probably means kind of strolling back and forth. But, the, but, I mean, the Jewish tradition is just as squeamish as anybody else about the idea that God was kind of shuffling around in the garden. And so when something in the text is problematic, the Jewish impulse, see, that's the thing. When it's problematic, like, what? God was walking around in the garden? We don't gloss over it, right? We dig into it. We go further into it. <laughs> Need some discipline. Okay, I think I need to not touch the thing. Um, so, so we there's a tendency in this Jewish tradition to highlight. They they don't like talking about the the walking around in the garden thing either. Oh, maybe that's good. That's good. Right. Yes. Actually, maybe this is good. 
it's just a little bit of it. Is that okay? Is that okay? Okay, if it starts again, we'll turn it off. Okay, so, um, so we're going to highlight that weirdness, that strangeness, both of that verb and of the whole idea of God walking around in the garden. And we're going to use that as a hook for Midrash. So what Rabbi uh, Abba ben Kahana says is it's not the normal word for walk. It's that strange word for kind of repetitive walking, which means that it repeatedly leaped and ascended. What's it? The Shekhinah, the presence of God, the real home of the Shekhinah, the presence of God, was down below. When Adam sinned, it ascended to the first firmament. When Cain sinned, it ascended to the second firmament. When the generation of Enosh sinned, it ascended to the third. When the generation of the flood sinned to the fourth. With the generation of the Tower of Babel to the fifth. Okay, I give up. I killed it. Um, and with the people of Sodom to the sixth. And with the Egyptians in the days of Abraham to the seventh. But against these, there arose seven righteous men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Kohat, Amram, and Moshe. Moses. And they brought it down again to earth. Abraham brought it down from the seventh to the sixth. Isaac from the sixth to the fifth. Jacob from the fifth to the fourth. Levi from the fourth to the third. Kohat from the third to the second. Amram from the second to the first. And Moses brought it right down below. Okay. All this from one word. Right. A, a, a strange form of the verb to walk that has two extra letters in it. Okay. And, and a word that, by the way, in many translations is simply translated walking. So if you're trying to do this kind of interpretation from an English translation, sometimes it's not as easy as from the Hebrew. Um, but so what I love about this midrash is that it uses a single word in, a, in effect to illuminate the whole story of the Torah, the whole story. And um, that the tragedy of the garden consisted in the cutting off of the relationship between gods and human, humans and God. <laughs> between, the relationship between humans and God got cut off. That was the nature of the tragedy. And that each time humans fail to live in concert with God, it drives God farther away. So what is it that has the power to be, bring God back into our sphere? <coughs> Back where God is meant to be, get back where God originally was, according to this midrash, down below with us, according to the midrash, what was it? Righteousness. The righteousness of the patriarchs. But ultimately, who brings it down all the way? Moses. And when we talk about Moses, with certain things we know about Moses. What is it that's special about Moses? Well, two things. First, Moses went halfway, right? Moses went to the top of the mountain, and God came down to the top of the mountain. And Moses actually knew how to be in a place on, in the earthly realm that God also inhabited. So he... And while he was there, what did he do? He brought the law. He brought God's law, God's Torah, to earth. 
the covenant that Moses brings finally is what covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve with fine luxuriant clothing. And now they have a way again to live in concert with God, namely living by the law. And the other thing, speaking of luxuriant cloth, the other thing that Moses did in the, in the book of Exodus is he got the instructions for building the sanctuary. Remember the tent, the tabernacle in the desert? So that God, it says, so that God will dwell among them. A mishkan for the Shekinah. So at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses has successfully orchestrated the building of this thing according to God's instructions. And it says that God's presence fills the sanctuary. So Moses actually succeeds. And he brings the Shekinah back down to earth. So these are interpretive strands that, that sort of rush from that w one little bit of a story out to everything else that happens in the story of the Torah. But there are other interpretations. I mean, those, those are pretty good news stories, right? We got, we got the redemption, the, re the, 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 the repair of the, of the problem, of the tragedy, is in our hands. But there are other interpretations that are a little less cheerful. And, um, and this, I want to end with, with a piece of Midrash that I, I find especially moving. Um, and, and that is the one that's in section F yeah, on your handout. And like the last one, this, uh, this Midrash puts one word under the microscope. So in chapter 3, verse 9, there's a single Hebrew word that is translated, where are you? That's only one word in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's ayeka. And that's what it means. It's a, it's, aye is kind of a general question word that here means where. And ka is a suffix that means you. Where are you? So where are you? Ayeka. So... Um, that's what God asks when Adam and Eve have hidden because they're naked. Where are you, Ayeka? So actually, take a look at, um, at, at this page again. You see how um, the, the top section, the Bible section, has letters, kind of squarish letters. And those are the consonants of the Hebrew language. And all around, the little dots around it are vowels. And they tell you actually which of several possible pronunciations for that set of letters, uh, for that set of consonants, is is the one that's meant here. And um, the printed printed Hebrew printed Bibles have those vowels, but the Torah scrolls that are used um, in synagogues and any scroll of the Bible just has the consonants. And if you see these letters, this is a different font, so it looks a little weird, but there's no vowels in this part. So that's the, that's the sort of norm for Hebrew writing, is writing without vowels. So it's really, that's the unusual situation to have it written with vowels. And, um, and <coughs> without vowels, this word um, ayeka, 
where are you, would never be pronounced the way it's pronounced. This is the only place in the Bible where that four letters, let's go back. Um, so, see the four letters? Aleph, Yud, Kaf, He, Ayeka. Uh, the third, see I, I have four, three Hebrew words there. They're all the same uh, consonants and they have different vowels. The bottom one is with no vowels. And that, there's only one place where it's got the vowels in the top one that mean, where are you? Every place else that that word is used, and it's a fairly high profile word, it's got the second set of vowels, which is read echa, echa. So the reason that's such a high profile word is that it's the first word of three of the five chapters of the Book of Lamentations. The Book of Lamentations in Hebrew is called Echa. And Echa means, it's often translated alas, woe is me. Um, <laughs> but it's, or it's translated in its very literal sense, how can it be? Right? Either way, it's a cry of anguish. Echa. Echa. It's a cry of anguish. So, um, there's a series of midrashic comments that begins by pretending not to know the vowels on the word ayeka. And one of these imagines that what God says to Adam is not ayeka, where are you, but echa. How can it be? So according to that reading, when God goes down there and sees Adam hiding and knows what, what went down, God is lamenting. <coughs> lamenting. And the Midrash connects God's lament directly with the book of Lamentations. Okay, do you, do you know anything about the book of Lamentations? The book of Lamentations is near the end of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And it is a book that bewails the destruction of the first temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. So Solomon's temple is destroyed, and the book of Lamentations is a lament over that destruction. And a lament that sort of implies that it was due to the sins of the Israelites that the temple was destroyed. So. When this, I, I'm gonna, I'll read you the first line of the book of, of, of Lamentations. It starts like this. Echa, alas, how could it be? Lonely sits the city that was once crowded with people. And it's very sad. I mean, really, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful lament and mourning of the loss of this vibrant, once godly city. So in the text, it's not clear who's speaking in that first line. To um, pretend that it's God speaking, okay? And go is going to say what God said to Adam, when what God's response to Adam and Eve in the garden was the same as God's response <coughs> to the destruction, to, the, to what was going on in Jerusalem at the time of the destruction. So God says, just as I led 
Adam into the Garden of Eden, and I commanded him, and he transgressed my commandment, and I punished him by sending him away and expelling him, and I bewailed him with Echa. In the same way, so also did I bring his descendants into the land of Israel, and I commanded them, and they transgressed my commandments, and I punished them by sending them away and expelling them, and I bewailed them with Echa. So this is short, but it does a lot. Actually, I left some stuff out where it, connect, where it brings in lots and lots of different Bible verses. It's beautiful, but just that little bit. First, it paints God reacting to the story of the garden not as angry. He's not angry. Not coldly just, but anguished. When God drove the people out of the garden, God was brokenhearted. And the garden was a place that God could walk with humans together in the breeze of the day. It was not good for God to be alone, so God created man and now God was bereft. And according to this Midrash, God cried the same tears at the destruction of the temple. So, and remember that in the Jewish story, the temple, what was the temple? The temple was an earthly realm that was hospitable to God, that was built to God's specifications and filled with the pure and holy aromas that allowed God's presence to inhabit the earth. And this Midrash imagines God's loneliness when that venue for human companionship is gone. True, there was sin. True, there was punishment, and, in, and true in both cases that um, the punishment was just, right? In both the garden and the temple. The expulsion was for just cause. But the greatest tragedy of all is how the outcome of these two expulsions disappointed and saddened God. So if I were going to, I mean, what I want to say is that all these interpretations are interpretations made by people who are trying to read this book to find out about God and about the meaning of the divine. So if you are going to make a, 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 a sermon right, based on a midrash like this, you might say something like, God wants to live in loving harmony with humans. And over and over again, people fail to keep the covenant that God offers, making it impossible for God to stay in the relationship. And yet, God tries again. And the entire Torah, the entire Hebrew Bible, according to this Midrash, might be read as the story of God's attempts to get close to humans and God's unending faith that humans will eventually be able to make the world a godly realm, a hospitable place for God. So we've taken a lot of, a lot of turns and taken sort of very different flashlights and magnifying glasses to different 
to different verses in the Bible, and and it may be very confusing, and you may be um, you may be at your wit's end here. But um, I would like to to know what your reactions are, and especially if there if you can articulate the, the two questions that I posed earlier on, whether there whether you have any way to articulate how this, these ways of reading that I'm talking about here maybe differ from what you're used to, and also whether you think, whether you can buy this idea in any way that this, that, that second story is a story of um, compassion and mercy preceding judgment. So that's what I have to offer, and um, I'd love to hear your, your response. Just three questions. We'll start with this one and two others, and then we will release you very happily, okay? Okay, thank okay? you. Okay, and if you want to stay, we can come down and we have some more discussion up front, okay? Okay. So I was reading, um, I was reading a little bit of um, St. Augustine before I, before I came here, and one of the things that I noticed was when, was the discussion of um, two deaths. The idea that there is a death that's a worldly death, and another death that's a much worse death, a death that's a distancing from God. And all I want to say about original sin is that in the Hebrew of the, of the, of the commandment from God, do not eat from this or you will die, yes, die, the word die is repeated twice. Now, it's a perfectly normal Hebrew construction that causes that word to be printed, to be appear twice, but it's a hook for Midrash. And I guess that I was very moved to see that in that discussion of two deaths, there was deep textual grounding of just the kind that the Midrash that the, that the rabbis of the Midrash would have found compelling and would have used as a hook to hang an interpretation. And so I guess what, where, I, where I hope that that um, points is to the idea that that's a very profound and textually grounded interpretation. Other questions? Um, it's it, in that particular midrash. It's left completely open, right? And only I mean, it, what was? Where is that thing? It says um, um, the snake began speaking slander about the creator, saying, "This is the tree from which God ate." And everybody hates their competitors, and then she eats it anyway. I mean. It's a snaky kind of thing that leads her to that. It's an insinuation. Um, and so, I, so I, I think the tone of it certainly is not congratulatory, um, but that's not the main purpose of that midrash. I do want to say there are other there are midrashim that say 
in which Adam says, look what you've done to me, this is terrible. Um, there, it's not, um, there is, it's not so black and white that there's a clear condemnation of that as the great sin of disobedience. There's more interest in asking what happened here and how did it happen? So it's not like it's upheld as a wonderful collaboration. It's just that it's the focus is on asking what happened. But that's a it's a very important question. Um, just sort of touching on what you were saying towards the end about uh, God's anguish at constantly wishing to live in this relationship with humanity and, and it never working out. If I if I remember correctly in the in what we're calling the second story, it starts off with um, God places the human in the garden, of, in the garden, uh -huh. sort of possibly insinuating that humans had already been created, not in the garden, and then placed in. Right. Could there be a sense there that um, almost that 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 presence, that that relationship, that you know, closeness of, of dwelling of God and humans? was almost unnatural, that God kind of knew it could never work out, but wanted it to so much because he was so in love with his creation. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> and that's beautiful. I mean, that's, that is a, this is a midrashic conversation, right? I mean, um, and it's, it's one that I think, uh, you know, points in a direction that might be very productive for, um, uh, for certain kinds of thinking, I think, I think that's that's a very nice. Um, I mean, it's possible. Maybe maybe God isn't meant. Maybe God maybe God was actually like that. That that disappointment was based on the real impossibility of humans and God living together. Personally, I'm more optimistic than that. But you know, optimism comes from different sources. <laughs> Because he you knew know, that it was a You end up with a clumsy God, though. If you want a loving God, you have to have, you have to take the clumsy God and go with it. Right. So does that point in the direction? Can can you does can can that uh, give us any insight into this uh, into this uh, compassionate God in the in the second story? Uh, I think so. Any other, any other student questions you have? No, you guys are awesome, but we need one question from students. No, 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 no. We need one student question. One student question. Dr. Bruce says. He's a student. He's a student. One more student question. Come on. Okay, right here. A what? A good figure because he prompted Eve to take the apple that provided her with knowledge. Could the serpent? Could the serpent be? Yeah. Could the snake be a good guy? Um, well, I mean, you know, that's you've just made a you've just made a midrash too. I mean, you you know, if you could say, look, the snake came in, and there, there's I, I could make up I could make up a midrash that supported that view. Um, you know, I, I'm not aware of any midrashim that actually come right out and say that, but it's a contemporary midrash. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.